Hey friends, welcome to the Axiom Church Podcast. We're so glad you decided to join us and check out our episode. Um, this is a space where we post our, our Sunday sermons and occasionally we have discussions and conversations regarding life in this community and following Jesus. So thank you for listening and please engage us on our website axiomchurchaz.com or on any of our social medias. We'd love to hear from you. Take care. community group leaders here and from time to time I teach like this time right now. Uh, Last week we started a new series called Sunday School and we are revisiting classic Old Testament Bible stories because we believe that all of scripture is God-breathed and these stories um, they point to Jesus and so we want to take the time to revisit some of these. A couple weeks ago, Gavin asked me what my favorite Old Testament story is. I didn't know we were going to do a a series on it. And I gave it a thought. I thought, you know, it's not really one story, but I love the Exodus. I feel like I return to to the story of of God rescuing the Israelites from Egypt and not taking them directly to the Promised Land, but that 40-year journey through the wilderness, that Exodus story that's full of lots of little stories. I've returned to that again and again, particularly in wilderness seasons of my own life. But I think no matter what kind of season in life you're in, if you feel like you're in the wilderness right now, or if things are good, I think we all are in the wilderness because we're all on this side of Genesis 3 trying to travel along and follow God in relationship until we finally reach a space where even our marrow will say, I'm home, I'm home. And between today and that point, we're all in the wilderness. So this is a story that that has food for all of us to to take in. Um, But before we we dig in, I want to pray. Um, Jesus, we just acknowledge that, that you are here with us right now in the room. You are seated on your throne, but you are seated on the throne of our hearts. You are intimately acquainted with all of our ways And despite that, you love us so, so much. You've begun a good work in all of us, and you've promised to carry it to completion. And we just invite you to do some of that work now in this worship service as we set things aside, set our worries aside, our plans for the day aside, knowing that you'll remember and remind us to pick it back up again when we leave. But in the meantime, that we would just be able to give our attention to you and what it is that you want to say to each of our hearts this morning. Thank you so much that you let us meet with you together in this way. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 16. So you're welcome. I'm not going to teach the entire book of Exodus, or we'd be here till dinner. Um, I'm just going to teach on 16, which is the story of the manna, the provision of the manna in the desert. And as I've had my mind in this text, I can't stop thinking about the familiar adage, I think we probably all know it, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. You're all familiar with that adage? You might want to hold that in your minds as we go through the text today. And I just want to give a little bit of backstory before we get to um, chapter 16 here. What's been going on is the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. 
That is a very long time. It means that when they were um, set free, which is where we'll find ourselves this morning, there's not a single person in that population who was ever not a slave. And there are no elderly people in the group who were ever not a slave. This is the whole life they know. Now, they knew that it was a horrible life and they hated it. And so God heard their grumbling. He appointed Moses. That's its own fantastic Sunday school story we're not gonna get into today, but it culminated in a point where the Red Sea parted before them. And it was dry land and this large group of people crossed the Red Sea to safety while Pharaoh's army on chariots were chasing after them. And then when they turned around, they're all on the, on the safe side of the shore now. The water crashed over their enemies, and they were completely safe. Okay. Uh, now, to give some perspective to help with your imagination, not just with the Red Sea part, but where we'll be today in chapter 16. It, the text says that there were 600,000 men plus women and children. To give perspective, that is more than three times the population of Peoria, just the men. And remember, Peoria isn't just this, the few blocks we're sitting on here today, it goes all the way to Lake Pleasant, okay? So just the men, more than three times the population of Peoria. This is a large group of people we're talking about. And Moses and Aaron are serving as leaders in this story. So I think that's enough backstory. We're gonna read the whole chapter, starting in verse one. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. So while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, or when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. 
Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left, keep it till morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it didn't stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. I won't test you on the math later. So just some things to notice in the text. At the very beginning, it says that uh, this scene takes place a month and a half after they crossed the Red Sea. Now, they had provisions. They were not starving for a month and a half. They did bring provisions with them as they crossed the Red Sea. I don't know how long they've been hungry. I don't know if it was just that very day or if it's been a few days, but they haven't been starving for a month and a half, but that does give you some, some perspective how long they've been here in the wilderness. Um, and, and basically, I mean, you heard the story. What happens is they're hungry, and they start complaining. What's interesting is that nowhere in the story does it say that these hungry Israelites asked God to give them food. They also didn't ask Moses and Aaron to ask God to give them food. And we don't see Moses and Aaron asking God to give the people food. God just hears their complaints and gives them food. And boy, he does it in such a spectacular way, right? He does the quail in the evening, so they still have meat. But the manna, that's where the real mystery is. Because this doesn't happen before 
And it doesn't happen after, like it, it doesn't, you know, it goes on for 40 years. But you don't see manna again in this way, this strange substance that's on the ground. They still have creativity with it. They don't have to eat it as is. They can bake it. They can boil it. Other texts in the Old Testament says they would make cakes with it. So, so they had their space for creativity with it. And you see what happens. They go out and they gather exactly what they need every single time. It's exactly, even the ones that are like, I'm going to get a whole bunch today. Well, then they take it back and they have their like Omer measuring cup and they're like, oh wow, it's exactly an Omer. And then the people who were like, oh, I, I just am going to gather a little bit today. I'm not super hungry. They're like, oh wow, it's still an Omer every time. But then remember the people who were like, oh, I'm going to just like put a little away in my pocket so I can have a midnight snack. It would be full of maggots and stink the next day. This is not an overnight, keep it overnight kind of food. But that's not always true, right? Except the one day of the week. They gather twice as much, and that doesn't spoil overnight, so then they don't have to gather it. It's, it's this absolutely interesting phenomenon, the whole manna situation. And the word manna literally means, what is it? And that's what they continue to call it forever. It would be like all the people walked out that first day and went, huh? And then they decided to call it, huh? <laughs> and that's, that's what manna is. It's just, what is it? What is it? And that's what they eat. But remember that adage, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. I only see giving here. <laughs> like, 100% give a man a fish for a day. Every single day for 40 years, which is 14,600 days. God seemed to give them a fish to feed them for a day. Now, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in, in that, that saying, you know. Um, the whole idea, right, is that giving is good, but teaching is, is better than giving. Teaching is like a better kind of giving. Why is that? If you only give someone a fish every day, what are you creating? Trust. What? It, dependency. dependency, yeah. That's what you're creating. So we know God's not a fool. Maybe this wasn't about fish or manna. Maybe he was actually teaching them and not just giving. What if he was teaching trust, teaching dependency, so that they would be taken care of for a lifetime? For a lifetime. See, God's view of reality it's very different than ours. It's, it's more accurate than ours, more accurate than the Israelites' view of, of reality. And we see, according to the types of things that the Israelites say in the story, the types of things that God says in the story are reflections of that reality within. We hear the Israelites say things like, I'm hungry. But then we hear God respond with things like, you will know it was me who brought you out of Egypt. We're like, are these two different conversations? <laughs> okay. We hear the Israelites say things like, did you bring us here to die? And then God says things like, you will know that I am your God. These are reflecting two different mindsets, two different sense of, of reality. The Israelites' reality is reflecting what, what they feel, their felt needs. That is their view of reality. God's view, though, his language is reflecting relationship. This phrase, you will know that I am your God, we, we hear it a lot, all through Scripture, and, and through the book of Exodus in particular, and this group of people, this 600,000 plus 
women and children, have heard it said, you will be my people, I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. This is not just the language of relationship, it is the language of intimate relationship. My husband's name is Mike. Mike's a pretty common name, especially in my generation. I always had a lot of Mikes in my classes growing up. They had to have their, their you know, last name initial. And if I'm somewhere with a group of people and they're talking about Mike, I might say, oh, are you talking about my Mike? There are a lot of Mikes that I know, but I only have one, my Mike. And I earned it. We've been married 25 years, and I'm his Denise. Okay? And God says, you will be my people. But he takes it one step further. He doesn't just say, I'm going to own you. You will be my people. He says, you can, you can own me. I will be your God. I will be your God. This mindset, these two different ideas of, of what it means to be alive. You see, the Israelites, and I would say the human race since Genesis 3, would say what it means to be alive is to have food, water, um, health, shelter, you know, community, right? These, these are all things that I think we would say, this is what it means to be a human who's alive. And you know, we, we could probably add some things to that list. Those pretty basic needs, right? And God, he says, yes, and relationship with me. These are the things a human needs to be alive. Food, water, health, shelter, community, relationship with God. And I think that first list, we all feel those needs, right? We know what it's like to be hungry, thirsty, sick, lonely, afraid. But a lot of us, I would say most, maybe even all of us, don't really have like a felt need for our relationship with God. But let me ask you, if you don't feel a need, is it still a need? Um, you may be familiar that people with diabetes are at a higher risk of having amputation on, on the feet. You've heard this. Um, one reason, I, I'm not a doctor, but one reason is a higher risk for diabetic neuropathy. Neuropathy is nerve damage. If you have nerve damage in your feet, then you may not feel if you step on something sharp. You may not feel if you have a wound that is now would normally have the pain that is associated with infection as a warning sign. If you have neuropathy in your feet, that will go on without your knowledge. And sometimes that can lead to having your foot amputated. So I ask again, if you don't feel the need, is it still a need? I think in Genesis 3, we all developed spiritual neuropathy. Our felt need for our relationship with God went numb. But it's still there. And God knew this when he was with his people. When he was with the Israelites, he knew they felt hungry. He knew they were hungry. He knows humans. But he also knew of the need that they weren't feeling. So what did he do about it? Did he make them feel it? Did he demand, you need to feel your need for me in relationship? See, this was in the, the part of Scripture where the, the God is like dwelling in this cloud by day, in this pillar of fire by night. And the only one who was really interacting with God face, face to face within the cloud was Moses. 
because it scared everyone else to death. They were terrified of the presence of God in this cloud, and, and they would even say, Moses, you just deal with him, and then you talk to us, and we're just a little too scared. Okay, he had them at his mercy. He is the Lord of armies, angel armies. He could have, like, come out, guns blazing, the lightning cloud, and said, if you don't have relationship with me, you will die, and they would have been trembling and afraid, and, and he didn't do that because that's the kind of thing that Pharaoh would do. And God is not like Pharaoh. Even in a cloud that can be scary, he is still the embodiment of love. So what does God, the embodiment of love, do? He meets us where we're at. He meets us at our level. He didn't ask them to, to do something they can't do, to conjure up a felt need that they, they don't have the power to do that. So instead, he developed a habit with them, a habit of relationship. He developed this habit of relationship that required that they listen to him. That's a key component of relationship with anyone, right? And, he, and he, so he, he fed them in a weird way, right, <laughs> with like specific instructions. But it was so that they would develop the habit of listening, listening. And then when they listen, that they would trust and act according to that trust, which is to go ahead and just gather what you need for today and not save any overnight. Go ahead and gather twice as much on the sixth day, these kind of specific instructions. And to do this every single day for 14,600 days. Last time I heard it only takes 21 days to build a habit, but God was like, no, no, I got you in this. I know how hard this is to develop a relationship with me. I know how hard this is. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you. This is how to do it. Now, without relationship with God, we're not fully alive. We will die because, as Jesus says, life is more than food. Let's take a look at, at John 6, actually. Let's take a look at John 6. I can find it. Verses uh, 25 through 35. Okay. So, oh, sorry, a little context. Jesus just fed, like, thousands of people, right? And, and then he went off uh, from that area on a boat all by himself, and then the disciples later, they got on a different boat, and they went and followed him, and then all those thousands of people were like, wait a minute, Jesus left, and he wasn't even on the same boat as the disciples. Where did he go? And they all were like, let's find him. And so they all ran around, and now the big crowd found Jesus again, and here we are in verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi... When did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Or what will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses 
who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the what is it that we can trust. Jesus is the food that is provided for us every single day, exactly what we need to take in and to live a full life. But it does involve that relationship. And he knows the hurdles and the fears that come with that. And, and I want to acknowledge in, in the, the text, really all through scripture, but in this text in particular about the manna, see, I, that relationship was listening, and I said trusting and acting accordingly. But trusting and acting accordingly, that's obedience. And, and I want to just acknowledge that there's a weightiness around the word obedience. And um, I believe it's because it's been abused, especially in the church, especially from, from people like me standing on stage with a microphone, people who have relationship with others within the church and say things like, I say you need to do X, Y, Z, and if you don't, you're disobeying God. Or God says you must do X, Y, Z specifically, and if you don't, you're disobeying God. It's hurt a lot of people, and so I just want to hold space for that and acknowledge that. The healing for those very, very real wounds that are associated with, with disobedience, the healing for that is found in obedience to God. That's tricky. That's like a tricky thing, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, so I'm going to invite us into a time of silence. And in the silence, I'm going to just give some, some suggestions that you can hold this space with Jesus, with, with the God who loves you so much. Um, one thing is, if you do have some wounds around obedience with God. If you have some trust issues with God, Lord, this could be a space where you could sit with him and hold that out in the light. However you interact with God and, and that in your hands, that's your business with him. But I invite you, if you're comfortable to do so, to hold any wounds that you may have around this, any lack of trust in the space of a God who, who actually really gets it and cares. Another invitation during this time of silence would be to bring some felt needs to him. You know, I, when they were hungry, he didn't say, oh, that's stupid, just have relationship with me. <laughs> he fed them, okay, and he does this all through scripture. Jesus did this, okay. Our felt needs matter. They matter to God. And so if you have any felt need at all, hunger, thirst, you need healing, you need money, you have fears, you're lonely, the sky's the limit, we have a lot of felt needs, okay. You could, if you'd like, in this space, hold that felt need. And when you do so, that's actually connecting in relationship with him, 
which is sort of, you know, getting two needs with one stone. And if God is inviting you to do anything else in this silence, or you just want to sit in silence, this is a good time for it. And then after a pause, I'll go ahead and close in prayer.